0: Well, if you have your Bible, then I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. And we've been going through the book of Acts, and so I encourage you to turn there. And I will begin by reading from verse 1. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven and behold at that very moment three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from caesarea and the spirit told me to go with them making no distinction these six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say send to joppa and bring simon who's called peter He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, And to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, this is the final section uh, of Peter's ministry with a Gentile named Cornelius. Uh, We remember in the previous chapter uh, that God spoke to Cornelius to send men to Joppa, to find the Apostle Peter so that he can preach a message that will save him and his household. And then in Joppa, while Peter was praying, God appeared to him in a vision. And the meaning of the vision is that Peter should not be concerned with associating himself with the Gentiles, non-Jews, that is. And God told Peter to go with the three men, whom Cornelius sent so that he can travel to Caesarea with those men. And after Peter met Cornelius, he preached the gospel to him and those around him, his close friends, his household, and many people surrounding him. And suddenly the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles. And afterwards, the Gentiles became followers of Jesus and were baptized, and they continued to learn about the ways of Jesus. And so this is a wonderful news, because without this chapter... Brothers and sisters, there will be no way for Gentiles like us, non-Jews, to be saved, to be included into the fellowship of the church. Now, Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18, is a report given by Peter that summarizes chapter 10 of Acts. Now, it may be tempting for any of us to skim through this chapter with, because it is the same story, repeated again, and we immediately just assume that there's you know, nothing important new to learn. Nothing important here to consider. And because the text feels like it's repeated, the other temptation is not to look at the text to figure out what Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to communicate to us as readers. But God who inspired the word of God, the God who inspired his word in Scripture, is not into needless repetition. What you need to realize is that when the Bible is written, every single word is placed precisely there by God, for a reason. Nothing here is arbitrary. See, Luke did not have to include verses 5 to 17 in this passage. It would have been sufficient for him to just indicate in in verse 4 that Peter just explained the event to the Jewish believers in order, and that's it. No need to get into all the details. Because we as readers already know what happened in Acts chapter 10. However, Luke, who's led by the Holy Spirit, deemed it important to include Peter's report in written form and to repeat the story again. Well, why is that? Why did Luke do that? I think the simple answer is this. It's because it's very important. I don't know how else to say it, but whenever the Bible repeats words and events, it underscores their importance. But if I could give, provide a reason... And perhaps this event was especially important for Luke, the author himself, because why? He's a Gentile. He's a Gentile that gets to record the history of the early church and gets to explain the inclusion of the Gentiles into the Christian church. See, all of us, as we consider this passage, all of us should be celebrating that God shows no partiality. To the Gentiles, and that salvation came to the Gentiles, and that the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles, and that the Gentiles became followers of Christ without the need to go through Jewish rites. However, Peter's ministry and the inclusion of the Gentile does not come without challenges. Whenever there's a movement of God, whenever God is doing something new, or whenever there's a pioneering type changes in the church. There will be criticisms. But when God is doing something, who can stand in his way? Who can stand in his way? And so, what we see here in verses 1 to 3 as we come to the passage is that God wants the critics to know his ways. God wants his, the critics to know his way. See, I'm in no way saying that being critical is always a bad thing. Okay? We should always exercise spiritual discernment. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we are to be critical in a healthy way. Criticism can be like a friend when it's done in a loving and constructive manner. Uh, This type of criticism is meant to build up, build you up and help you to become wise and knowledgeable in the word of the Lord. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Alistair Begg, pastor in the state, once said that you will never have a better friend than a friend who points you to Jesus Christ. But criticism can be like a pest when it's done in a manner that tears people down. Critical people often make judgments Based on appearance and action, instead of choosing to understand the other side of the story. They assume the words of that individual, and they're rather unfair in their criticism. See, in verse one, while Peter was still in Caesarea ministering to the new believers, somehow the news that the Gentiles had received the word of God circulated, spread throughout all of Judea. And the rest of the and the rest of the apostles and the brothers heard about this news. And so when Peter traveled around 100 kilometers from Caesarea, northwest, all the way back down to Jerusalem, he faced criticism from the circumcision party. Now, what's the the criticism of Peter? Well, the issue at hand is found in verse 3. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, who was the circumcision party? Who were these people? You know, there were the Jewish Christians who were made up of the church in Jerusalem. They followed Jesus, and they believed him to be the Messiah, but they were also zealous for the law and for the the Jewish custom. And if if Gentiles want to live as Christians, then they have to become Jewish by going through circumcision. See, what bothered the critics here was not that Gentiles received the word of God per se. That's not the main issue. Their problem with Peter was his direct association with Gentiles. He went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That was a taboo in that culture. And since the Gentiles were uncircumcised and that they did not keep the culture law, they were considered unclean. And by implication, by implication of the fact that Peter went and ate with them, Peter defiled himself by eating with Gentiles. Now, one shouldn't blame these Jewish Christians for being critical of Peter. You must remember that their identity was deeply ingrained in the teachings of the Old Testament, especially the matter of circumcision. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, said this, and I quote, The matter of circumcision was central to how these first century Christians understood the covenant, salvation, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles, end quote. So circumcision was a very important issue for them. Circumcision was more than just a physical act. See, in in, in Genesis 17, all the way back to the first book of the Bible, when God gave this covenant of circumcision to Abraham, it was a way to set God's people apart. From the rest of the nation to be holy unto the Lord. It was a mark that it was a mark that they were part of God's covenant people, while uncircumcised were not part of God's covenant people. So in their minds, circumcision was ingrained into the Jewish conscience that they would call themselves the circumcised and the rest of the nation uncircumcised men. And now the topic of circumcision will become a very controversial issue. That the early church had to address at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, because the question that arises in that council is this: Does a Gentile need to be circumcised in order to be saved? Do they need to be circumcised in order to go to heaven? Now, this question is this question wasn't trivial back then. It wasn't trivial. It was a doctrinally serious matter because. Advocates of circumcision say that you cannot just believe in Jesus to be saved, but that you need to add circumcision to the equation. Spoiler alert, I'll just say this, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And that's going to be addressed in Acts 15. But these Jewish Christians, however, had a misplaced priority. They had a wrong thinking about this matter. They were more concerned about their tradition than the salvation of the Gentiles. Now, before you judge the Jewish believers for their critical spirit, you must be sure that you remove the law from your own eyes. Because we may be guilty of elevating certain traditions, preferences, status quos, and, and, and the way of doing things above the salvation of the lost and above scriptural truths. We often do that same thing. For just for example, style of music. When a style of music we are unfamiliar with are presented in the church, Some make protests and saying, Oh, it's irreverence without really trying hard to understand why the changes has have been made. And maybe another example here is this. You know, when many young people, like the millennials or Gen Z join and attend our church, you know, we desire them to know Jesus Christ and to grow in the knowledge of the scriptures. But oftentimes I hope this is not the case for any of us, but maybe there are maybe some of us who want to make sure that these young people, that they look and behave like the generation that grew up in the church during the 70s and 80s. We've got to be cautious of that. And so with with that in mind, the critics need to know God's way. But in order for the critics to know God's way, God wants his messengers to explain his way. And that's found in verses 4 to 16. Peter's action here is that he was going to explain what's going to happen. Peter shows how, Im- <coughs> how important it is to take pains, to get Peter's, uh, people's approval for the directions that we are moving in. See, how often do we try to sidestep this difficult process? Sometimes when you try to present something new, you'll take hits for sure. And even as the apostle and leader of the Jerusalem church, Peter could have just used his apostolic authority to silence his critics. He could have said, I'm the apostle, I'm the leader, you be quiet. And Peter isn't obligated to respond to them because of his special experience with the Gentiles. But he does respond to them. And when he responds to them, he does it in a gracious manner, That doesn't sound like a direct rebuke to his critics. Also, Peter isn't interested right now in a heated and theological debate with the the circumcised party. That debate will be reserved later. Instead, Peter simply just gives them his side of the story. It is both a recapitulation and defense speech that testifies and explains the work of God. Most of the speech is a review of Acts 10, but this is told from Peter's perspective. And we'll just go over it quickly and make some comments and highlights. See, verses 5 to 10 speaks of the unique vision that Peter had during his prayer time. It says here in verses 5 to 10, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet, descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. See, Peter is just essentially telling his audience, look, I saw something. I saw a vision. I saw a great sheet that's standing down. And I saw a bunch of animals. I saw saw clean animals that part the hoof and are cloven-footed and chew the cud, referring to the cows. And I also saw unclean animals, such as pigs, swine, And then I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. You may eat these animals now, both clean and unclean. And then Peter told the Lord, No, I cannot do that. I've never eaten these things. I've never eaten swines. You see, Peter in his whole life has never laid a finger on bacon, sausage, and hot dog. And the main point of Peter's vision is found in verse 9. What God has made clean do not call common or undefiled or def- or undefiled or defile or unclean. And we should praise God that we get to eat bacon these days and sausage because of this passage. And Peter received his mess- this message three times. But he did not fully understand the meaning behind it. And we recall that he was perplexed by the vision because you, you have God telling him to eat what's instructed, what he's instructed not to eat in the Old Testament. But we, we remember that this was more than just an issue of food. Peter later on understood that God has shown him that he should not call any person, that is, the Gentiles, common or unclean. He's free to eat and associate with the Gentiles. And after his vision, he discovered three men at his door. In verse 11, three Gentile men were sent to get Peter from Caesarea. And notice in verse 12 that it was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who told Peter to go with the three men, making no distinction, which means... Peter should not exercise partiality. Peter should not discriminate. Just because they're Gentiles, God gave Peter the freedom and permission to meet with them and to travel to Cornelius' house. Notice how many Christians here, verse 6. Notice how many Christians accompany Peter to witness this event which isn't really supplied in Acts 10, but it is supplied here. Six brothers accompany Peter. So in total, including Peter himself, there's, there are seven people, seven brothers, seven men, who are there to testify this event. And you know that in the Old Testament, whenever you're in the court of law, you want to testify your case to prove whether the case is valid or not, you need two or three witnesses. But here, there's more than two or three witnesses, seven of them. Fascinating. And Peter is saying to his audience, I went to the Gentiles out of obedience to God, the Spirit. It was God who commanded me to go with them. And since he commanded me to do so, I cannot disobey, even though right now during that time, nothing makes sense to me at the moment. And so Peter and his six brothers entered into the man's house, which was Cornelius. Cornelius. And Peter testifies to his critics that Cornelius shared his story of how he had seen an angel giving him instruction. And the angel instructed Cornelius to send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, for what purpose? Verse 14, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So you have Peter's vision and you have Cornelius' vision. Everything is lining up here. It's all part of God's plan of salvation for the Gentiles. You see, the gospel that is preached to the Gentiles was a command from heaven. It it wasn't Peter's idea to to, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It was God's idea. It was God who sovereignly, who orchestrated this whole event so that non-Jews can hear the good news of salvation that is only That's found only in Jesus Christ. God gave the means of salvation by which one can be saved, and that is the gospel of Jesus, which is the message of salvation. We can be justified, we can be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. But God did not just give the means and the message, but he also, in his sovereign plan, he gave messengers to share this message, to proclaim this message to others. God wants all his people, to be involved in the proclamation of the gospel. And Peter was given that responsibility to do so. It was all part of God's agenda. It wasn't a human fabrication. It was God's idea. And so Peter preached the gospel to them at the end of Acts 10. But the greatest climax occurred at the coming of the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his household. Peter indicates in verse 15 here, that the same Holy Spirit, as I was preaching the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And the Holy Spirit fell on, the, fell on them just as it fell on us on the day of Pentecost. That's not Peter's doing. Peter didn't do this. It was, the sovereign, it was part of God's sovereignty. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles, it was a sign or evidence that they're born again and that they're welcome into the church. And so you see in verse verse 16, Peter testifies that he remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, what you need to see, what you need to notice here is this. For Peter to change the minds of his critics, He cannot simply appeal to his experience. He cannot simply say that this is a new movement of God if he cannot defend it from Scripture. One pastor said that lasting change has to take place in the mind, and we must be convinced that the new way of thinking is in line with Scripture. See, had Peter contradicted the Scripture with his experience, it must be rejected. Because God's truth is more authoritative than experience. Although his entire speech isn't a defense from Scripture, he does, however, recall a statement given by the Lord Jesus Christ back in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, whereby Jesus promised to baptize his people with the Holy Spirit, including the Gentiles here. And I don't think Peter understood the full scale. Jesus's words, he probably only understood it in the context of the nation of Israel. But what a wonderful thing to see in the text that Peter remembers Jesus' words, and that it applies even here in this context. And now, one thing I want to highlight here for you is that is this, and you don't you do not see this you do not see this in the English here, and that's the word remembered in verse 16. I remembered in in the Greek very important to know Greek. It's very important to know the original language. In the Greek, it is used in the passive voice. So if I could rephrase this, retranslate this, is this. I was being reminded. Peter wasn't doing the act of remembering here. But there's an active voice outside of Peter who was doing the act of helping him remember the words of Jesus. So who exactly helped Peter? Who is the active voice here? that helped Peter remember. John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you, will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It was the Holy Spirit who helped Peter remember this event. Or remember what Jesus said. The ministry of God the Holy Spirit strikes at every point in this whole entire narrative. It was God who planned this event. It was God who did the sending. It was God who did the saving. It was God who did the reminding here. And so here, Peter concludes his speech with a big question. Found in verse 17. If then God gave the same spirit to them as he gave to us, When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? You see, what we learn here in these last two verses is that God wants his people. God wants his people to follow his way. See, remember, God wants his critics to know his way. God wants his messengers to explain his way. And God wants us, his people, to follow his way. This question was a way to challenge his audience regarding their attitudes towards the Gentiles. Notice how Peter uses the pronouns here. There's them, there's us, there's we. God gave the same gift to them, the Gentiles, the Gentiles over there. He gave the same gift to us, the Jews here, when we collectively, both Jews and Gentiles, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what you need to notice here is that Peter doesn't want there to be a them and versus us kind of mentality. He wants there to be a we mentality. It's a we thing. We believe. And because we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit collectively, together. And this really echoes the idea in Ephesians where Paul says to the Gentile audience, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Peter is saying, if God is the one who saved the Gentiles, then who was I not to be okay with that which God is okay with? If God is okay, if God is for the Gentiles, then how can you and I be against this. Opposing Gentiles from getting saved, opposing Gentiles from being baptized, will be opposing God. Will anyone want to oppose God? Is there anything or anyone more powerful than God? Who can stand in God's way? And how do the critics respond to Peter? Well, this, is, this doesn't happen all the time, but they could, they, they, but they could not give a rebuttal. The text says they fell silent. They were no longer critical anymore. Peter changed their minds on this matter. And the only response that they give is that they glorify God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, also God granted repentance that leads to life. So the Jewish believers understood the gospel is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, like us. And they also understood that it was God who granted repentance. Sinner's repentance that leads to life, everlasting life, eternal life. Here's a question we all need to think about, especially, especially it comes from this text. Why was it important for the Jewish church in Jerusalem to understand that God saves the Gentiles? Why was it important for the Jews here to understand that God saves Gentiles? Certainly, it is to welcome them into the church. Just as God shows no partiality, just as God shows no distinction, the Jews are not to make distinctions and to discriminate people. (laughs) Furthermore, I think there's more to it. It was important, as we will see later on the book of Acts, is that there's a transformation of the Jewish minds about missions. That is why it's important for them to know that, gen- that God saves Gentiles. Is that this whole story regarding salvation of Gentiles is to reform and to renew the Jews' understanding of what it means to be missional? Is that they are to be mission-minded to the Gentiles? This is a big theolo- uh, missiological lesson from God. It's that God is for the Gentiles as well. And unless the Jewish Christians understand and realize that God intends to save Gentiles, they would never begin, to, uh, to be, they would never begin the task of evangelizing to the Gentile world. But because I think they understand it, they understood it, they sent, later on they sent Paul and Barnabas to go out into the Gentile world and to spread the gospel. See, what we need here is this. What we need to learn here in this passage is the same lesson for us all. If I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, all of us are Gentiles, unless you can correct me if I'm wrong. And because God intends to save sinners, we are called to evangelize to the lost. That's the responsibility and duty of all born again Christians. Not only that, the motivation behind being missional and spreading the gospel is found in Jesus Christ. Because when we we understand that when, when Jesus came into the world, he came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't only come to save the Jews, but he also came to save the Gentiles. So brothers and sisters, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He wants to save sinners from all walks of life, from diverse backgrounds. He doesn't just save sinners who look like us. He doesn't just save sinners who are old. He wants to save sinners who are young as well. He doesn't want us to save sinners who are you know, Caucasian, German, or Asians, or African. He wants to save all. Thankfully, us OBC here, Oak Ridge Baptist Church is multi-ethnic. is isn't really a homogenous church. You know, some churches struggle to be more diverse and to try to reach out to the diverse community. But we still have a task unfinished, and that is we continue the, the work, the great commission that God has given to us. And if you have eyes to see what God is doing around this community, many things are changing here in the community. More people are going to be moving into this community. And we have the responsibility here at Oakridge Baptist Church, as Christians, to continue to be the light in this community, to continue to be witnesses, and to evangelize to the lost in this diverse community. See, whoever God brings to this church, let us not stand in His way, but really simply obey and do His will. Let's pray. Father God. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this passage where you're reminding us again that of the important task of evangelizing to the lost. Thank you that because of this passage that we as Gentiles can come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if there are those in this room that don't know Jesus Christ, I ask that you would speak to them to their own hearts that you would, you would generate their hearts and that they would receive your word and receive Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior and you be saved. Father God, I pray that you continue to challenge us what it means to, to be on mission. Continue to challenge us to not um, make excuses, make excuses of not doing what you called us to do, that is to reach out to the lost. Father, if there are if there are a people group in our own lives that we feel like you know we're critical about, that we don't want to share the gospel with, please, God, I pray that you would break down any sort of barrier, break down any sort of sin of prejudice in our hearts that would prevent us from telling others about Jesus. So, Lord, have your way with us and let us not stand in your way let us trust and obey because there's no other way to be, but to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey so Lord we have a so Lord I ask that during this week you would continue to encourage us continue and challenge us continue to help us uh, to be a light to those around us whether it's our friends or coworkers who don't know you and even when we have shared the gospel with them, help us never to stop, but to continue to trust that God only ultimately you save. You're the one who saves them, saves them. But help us to, and I ask that you can help us be faithful, to be faithful in living out the Christian life that you called us to live. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.